0: The weather is nice My name is Kristen Turner, and this is New Books in Music, a channel on the New Books Network. Today, my guest is Dr. Kimberly A. Francis, author of not one, but two new books. The first, published in 2015 by Oxford University Press, is Teaching Stravinsky, Nadia Boulanger and the Consecration of a Modernist Icon. And just last month, Boydell and Brewer released Nadia Boulanger and the Stravinskys: a selected correspondence. In Teaching Stravinsky, Dr. Francis compellingly argues that pedagogue, composer, and conductor, Nadia Boulanger, was a central figure in Igor Stravinsky's life during the middle part of his career, providing him with support, advice, and a discerning editorial eye when he was writing some of his most important compositions, including the Symphony of Psalms and Persephone. In other hands, Teaching Stravinsky might have been a simple joint biography of two important people in mid-20th century musical modernism, but Frances grounds her work within a theoretical framework that promotes a new approach to musicology and other fields. Francis reminds us that as long as musicologists insist on centering their scholarship on the lone genius composer, someone who is almost always a man, we will miss how creative productions are really a result of the complex interplay of networks of influence and collaborators who participated in individual composers' lives and music. She positions Boulanger as a central participant in the world of musical modernism, who used her position as one of classical music's most well-known teachers to promote and shape Stravinsky's reputation and her musical skills to edit some of his most famous scores. In Nadia and Boulanger and the Stravinskys, Francis edits most of the letters exchanged over 40 years between Stravinsky, members of his family, and Boulanger, providing readers with an important resource to facilitate a new understanding of the writers and mid-20th century music. Welcome, Kim. I'm so glad to talk to you today.
1: Hi, Kristen. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Of course. So my first question is, how did you get um, interested in this topic?
1: Right. So I fell in love with Boulanger, and I remember reading about her for the first time as as, a... 20-year-old, my parents got me a book about Leonard Bernstein, and I was reading about um, him and his career, and I came across the mention of this Nadia Boulanger character who was this commanding force in pedagogy in the 20th century. And so I remember reading that name, and then when I came to do my master's research my lovely advisor, uh, Dr. Paul Merkley, recommended that I go and I look at JAMS, the Journal of the American Musicological Society, and see if anything in there sparked my interest. And wouldn't you know that by, um, that an article by Annegret Fraser just appeared, and it was on Boulanger and the Boulanger sisters and women in the Prix de Rome. And so I came across that article and I started to dive more into reading about Nadie Boulanger and I remember being struck by how little there was about her. She had touched so many people's lives by being their teacher, and yet no one had really written about her in great detail, um, compared to, say, you know, some of her male counterparts. So, as a master's student, a very, very naive master's student, you know, my advisor said, "Well, would you like to go to Paris?" And I said okay. Um, and I went off and I, I encountered the archives for the first time. And so that experience was so formative because I discovered how much there was to say about her, uh, and how much was left to do. And so I was so fortunate that I ended up studying, doing my PhD with Annegret Fauser. Uh, she opened so many doors for me and, um, and that was where I began to explore the topic of Boulanger and then her friendship with Igor Stravinsky.
0: Why did you choose to write this book about her relationship to Stravinsky rather than, say, a traditional biography or maybe uh, focusing on another relationship she had with a- another composer as she did, uh, was a teacher for so many important composers in the 20th century?
1: Well, I think the first was because I was a horribly ambitious student who really wanted to t- Something that I thought would be interesting. And certainly Igor Stravinsky is a towering figure. But as I delved into the archives, what I found was this was a very different story compared to the other composers, Boulanger, knew. Her devotion to this idea of Igor Stravinsky as a master composer, as a human being, um, was extraordinary. I mean, she was committed to her vision, um, but she also was dealing with someone who was her peer. So, you know, Boulanger was born in 87, Stravinsky 82. There was only really five years apart. They were only really five years apart. And Boulanger's mother um, was a, had a Russian background, um, and so there was this connection between the two on a personal level that really you couldn't replicate anywhere else. She was candid with him. She was open with him in her letters. So it revealed this whole um, side of her that had not really been discussed elsewhere. We have to remember, you know, Boulanger had no children. Uh, She outlived her mother and her sister and her father. So, um, she didn't really have any family to propagate her, her legacy. And so so many of her books were written by students. So we're left with a biographical tradition that I sometimes liken to glorified teaching evaluations. I mean, and isn't that a horrific concept that your you know, biography would be captured by students? Um, and so when I began to look at the Stravinsky materials um, and the materials that... that um, um, that she gave, uh, exchanged with him, it opened up a possibility for talking about her as a human being, as a peer, as, as a devoted um, artist and musician. So it, 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 allowed for a breadth of, of investigation. And I mean, personally, I also really loved that there were scores and analyses Um These rich musical texts that, you know, that would allow to toggle between biography and music making in unique ways.
0: Um, And why didn't you write just a, like, biography of Boulanger with a big section on Stravinsky? Why did you decide to, you know, to, because it's not a typical biography at all. I mean, you give biographical information and you refer to things, but... um, Uh, you know, you really do focus on the relationship more than you do on her life.
1: I found that it was... So, writing a biography would have been interesting, but it wouldn't necessarily have allowed for diving into the music. I think it also wouldn't really have allowed for explaining Boulanger the way I see her, which is someone who really lived a life just saturated with music making, with thinking about music and talking about music. And I wanted to be able to bring her to life as best I could. And so writing a biography doesn't necessarily allow that. Whereas if I could talk about her in relationship to Stravinsky, I could provide so many different angles about her. And that's what I found so exciting about the project.
0: Well, that brings up um, one of the things that I found exciting about reading the book, which was how you framed the way that you were thinking about Boulanger in a way that would allow other scholars to take figures like Boulanger and... um, uh, conceptualize how they worked within, for better lack of a better word, the music industry. So Boulanger is a figure that I think has been overlooked. As you said, you looked and saw there was very little written on her because she wasn't a genius composer. She wasn't a man. She wasn't, you know, she wasn't famous already. She hadn't been canonized by anyone. She, um, and she functioned behind the scenes. She functioned as a teacher, as an editor, as an analyst—all these um, functions that we know are important to music as a whole. But we don't typically, in musicology, tend to write about people in those um, in those roles. So, can you talk a little bit about about that um, approach in your book and how it might be applicable to other projects?
1: Sure, and I'm so glad that you that you. Mention that because I was always hoping that could be the greatest the, the biggest intervention, I suppose, in my in my own vision for the book. It's a lovely story, but it was it was that analytical framework that I hoped would give the book a little bit more life. Um we are very much entrenched in this world where we center our stories around the creator. And it has to be, you know, this solitary genius composer who is typically male um, and, you know, writes his music and does his thing. And it's, you know, we've inherited this construct from the romantic era um, and it's prevalent. And I really did struggle when writing the book initially with figuring out how to write a book about two people and how to write a book that wasn't stravinsky and what we find out about stravinsky through boulanger because i think that that was what a lot of people were hoping for or certainly when i received critical feedback that was often a criticism was we want to know more about stravinsky and and i wanted to tell more about about boulanger the when we look at this model for artistic production um, so often we look at a model um, where women are doing the helpmate tasks. They're doing the roles that are, as you said, behind the scenes that are supportive. Um, and then they are sort of disappear. They disappear from the historical record. Um, and I can't tell you a number of times I've had students come in who are sort of asking for pathways through or, or looking at people who you know, were fascinating to history, but we haven't talked about and so I think that that's one of the ways that we can get around it is if we break down this notion of the central genius, and we instead start talking about music as a community as and and the artist and the composer as part of this this web of relationships, this web of networks, and that also allows us to look at women as having um successful careers, even if they weren't necessarily composers. so many times when i'm talking when I'm teaching music history myself, I have to say, "Well, you know." Our textbooks say that women weren't, you know, they weren't successful as composers, but that doesn't mean they weren't successful. It simply means we have to change our model of what having a successful artistic career means. And we have to start thinking of these support networks um, that do empower composers, but in turn create very powerful figures, right? Boulanger was, you know, love her or hate her, warts and all. A very, very influential and powerful figure uh, at the apex of her career. Um, so I hope that 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 what people take away from this is a way of starting to recover um, women's history and the history of figures we don't often talk about, but who were who were there, who were very active. And I have to say, one of the more rewarding Um, some of the more rewarding feedback I've had is from people who bring this to their students to read and where they have students who are composers and they say, yes, you know, that's exactly the way it works. That's how it is. You know, you've got to have this dialogue. You have to have a space um, to talk about your music and to explore different artistic ideas. And so I think I hope that my book takes us a little closer to actually capturing how music is made.
0: I think that's really powerful. And and I, th- what I like about that is what you were saying about how composers say this is how music is made. And it shows how so much of our scholarship really distorts how music is made because we conceive of composers as sort of sitting in their tower by themselves, making music all by themselves with no one else around. And clearly, uh, clearly, we know that's not what happens, but that is the idea you get from so many books. And this one, I think, um, does not do that, obviously, and is committed to showing um, a larger, like, as you said, a community. So that I, th- I found that very powerful about the book, certainly. Um, I'm wondering all, how... You mentioned that some of your critiques were, at least initially, well, we want to know more about Stravinsky. And it occurs to me that there was a lot more secondary literature about Stravinsky than Boulanger. I'm going to imagine there's probably more um, uh, documentation, primary documentation about Stravinsky than has been preserved for Boulanger. How did you deal with sort of the... (laughs) inequity there so that you had so much more, I mean, I'm thinking of kind of like a a balance where the balance is way on Stravinsky's side than on Boulanger's. How did you manage that?
1: I mean, there's a couple of things that I would say to that. Um, So for example, Stravinsky's biography, the the more or less definitive one by Stephen Walsh, which is wonderful. It's two humongous volumes long, right? 800 pages. Uh, We have one biography on Boulanger, which is problematic um, by Léonie Rosenstiel, and it's got no footnotes. It has uh, a very limited bibliography, a very limited index, and it's, you know, quite short. So... When you engage with a figure like Stravinsky, with the sort of scholarly community around Stravinsky, uh, it's tough. It's complicated. Um, and I think so much of our, even our system of, 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 establishing the worth of documents is is so slanted uh, in, say, a figure like Stravinsky's favor. So, for example, when I went to the archives and I started looking specifically for stuff on Stravinsky, there are a handful of scores that you can pull up that um, have that are in Boulanger's archives and are cross-listed. So, you know, you can look up the symphony uh, in C and it'll come up. Where I really discovered the exciting stuff was when I started to look into the Stravinsky archives. And I cross-checked for the, the number that was Boulanger's gift. So every gift that goes to the Paris archives, um, the Bibliothèque de France, uh, they all have, have a number attached to them. And so um, all of these scores that Boulanger had owned, that Boulanger had annotated, were filed exclusively under Stravinsky's name. And I didn't discover them until the second half of my research visit and it was then that i started to pull them out and i could see stravinsky's annotations and um, and boulanger's comments and and it was then that i started to realize the breadth of documentation that there was but even our you know our archival methods hadn't really captured that um, i had to make a decision early on in the writing process how i was going to write this book and if you look at the the initial prospectus that i proposed for the dissertation you can see that tension there about well do i just go through stravinsky projects and insert boulanger into them right um, the 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 desire to and it could have very easily been a book about stravinsky that just happens to mention boulanger more often and uh, it was tempting and also it would have been very it would have been a little bit easier because there's there is so much out there on stravinsky and so there's a little bit more to build on But I really did want to tell this woman's story. And so I made a conscious effort to always um, present the evidence from Boulanger's point of view. And so I looked at every project. I looked at every event through the letters she received, through the documentation that she had, um, in the hopes that that would Tell its own story and would get away from the the omnipresent you know overwhelming stravinsky per per um
0: uh, presence yeah so um of course, it's clear from the Teaching Stravinsky book that one of your main archival resources was this trove of letters between Boulanger and Stravinsky. And of course, what's unusual about them is you have both sides of those letters. You don't just have one or the other, which is, of course, what normally happens. And there are also um, quite a number of letters between Boulanger and members of Stravinsky's family. She was clearly someone who was close to many people around Stravinsky, not just Igor Stravinsky himself. And then you have now published or edited um, a collection of this correspondence that's just come out in the last couple of weeks. How, why did you decide to um, edit that collection? How, and how do you see that collection as being important and separate from the Teaching Stravinsky book?
1: So um, you, the correspondence is so exciting and it's so fascinating. And um, there are hundreds of letters. So Boulanger got to know Stravinsky first through his son, Slima, who was her student. He studied with her beginning in 1930. And so we actually have the first letters are between Boulanger and the family where she's you know writing to the mother to say, you know, this is how things are going and, and letters from Slima, who's writing to his teacher. And then we get... That's how Boulanger becomes connected to, um, to Igor Stravinsky in a more personal way, beyond just um, professional acquaintance. Um, so these letters are th- are so, so interesting. And I was very excited when uh, I actually, the, the, the latter part of the life, when Boulanger and Stravinsky do become some, somewhat estranged, um, And just, you know, frankly, older, and it becomes difficult for them to remain in as close contact. Boulanger actually ends up writing quite extensively to Stravinsky's older son, Theodore, who was in Switzerland and and grew quite close to Boulanger. And then I discovered, so his letters to her are in her archives, and I discovered her letters to him. And so I had this fully fleshed out side of the conversation as Stravinsky's um, aging and getting ill growing increasingly um, ill. So it's this beautiful story. It begins around 1929, and it ends, I I stopped the correspondence in 72. The family continued to correspond with Boulanger until her death in 79. Um, And there's even some letters after her death uh, from the family to extend condolences to her friends. Um, But I stopped the letters at 72, um, when Boulanger is writing to Théodore and saying, you know, I was thinking of your father on the anniversary of his death, and uh, these are the pieces that were playing on a concert to remember him. So when I was writing the first book, I, I draw upon some of the letters, some of the more important ones in excerpted fashion, and um, I allow them to, to um, fill out the narrative where it's applicable. But I really did want to produce the correspondence all on its own because it is one of the, I think, one of the most exciting resources we have at the moment for Boulanger's own voice. You hear her writing, you get a sense of her passion and her devotion for the composer. There are moments as well where we get you know, some interesting glimpses into ah. Igor Stravinsky himself, um, where he, you know, he's talking about his remarriage. After, after the death of his first wife and his remarriage to his longtime lover, uh, Vera. Um, and, and there are moments where Stravinsky is explaining his works or he's complaining about, um, or he's complaining about critics. I, I really do think as well what the correspondence allows us to do is see Stravinsky as a family man. Um, he will write to Boulanger Uh, Some of the more touching material is from the Second World War, when both Boulanger and Stravinsky were in the United States. And so, you know, Stravinsky would write to her about his family when he learned that Boulanger was going to go back to Paris when the war was over. In 46, there's this exchange of letters about Stravinsky's new grandson, who had just been born in Paris. So you get to see Stravinsky as a doting grandfather. You get to see him... As a as a devoted father, um, so there are just uh, the human element of these documents is I think important. Um, again, to sort of fleshing out these these characters as people and not just objective um, creators. Uh, so it was it was very important to me that they be published. The other thing that was very important to me is that because this collection touches upon the vast majority of the Stravinsky, the immediate Stravinsky family, it was very important to me to publish his wife's letters. So his first wife, Catherine, did write to Naughty Blanger on a number of occasions. So I wanted to publish those so we could hear her voice because Catherine Stravinsky has primarily, again, been remembered through other biographers who weren't particularly, I don't want to say um, they were uninterested in what she had to say, but um, it, this allows her to speak through her own words, um, through those letters. Um, so yeah, I think there are, it's, it's very difficult to, um, to really the details that come out through their, through the correspondence are different from the themes that I was trying to draw out in the first book. Um, there are so many details in the letters, particularly when Boulanger returns after the war, about reconstruction performances of Stravinsky's works. Um, she she tells him so much about the early reception of The Rake's Progress, his opera, The Rake's Progress. We have performers listed in detail describing their abilities and what they could do well and what they couldn't do well. Um, so you don't just get their dialogue. In addition, you get this layer of musical life, Um that I could only touch upon in the first book. So um, I think the letters are more of a doc. They're more of reference material, but it was, it was important to me that we, that, that they appear in their entirety fleshed out um, rather than an excerpted fashion, which serves a purpose in and of itself.
0: (sighs) well i I do think that that collection is going to be really important for anyone who is looking either at Stravinsky or Boulanger. and as you said, it gives a um really interesting viewpoint on on Stravinsky, especially who often comes across as so cold and um unfeeling, and uh, you see that. You know, he does have this really rich personal life, which he is sharing with her in a way that I imagine he didn't share with many other people who were his professional colleagues as well.
1: Yeah. And I think that that, that there is a certain way that Stravinsky's historiography has been handled. And it was, you know, he was so entrenched in, um, in underlining this objective composer identity. He was very committed to his brand. And so... You know, you have that brand permeating the literature in so many places. And, you know, and we're still trying to, I mean, his music is so wonderful. And we're still trying to, you know, explore it. it, it, it we'll will never tap every every rich element of, of what he produced as a composer. Um, so with the correspondence, you get to see a different side of him. He wasn't so worried about his brand with Boulanger in a way because she'd already decided what she wanted his brand to be, and it was it was her brand too, especially when it was um, neoclassical music. you know, she was promoting her own interpretation of what good music represented. so um yeah, you don't hear him doing as much he doesn't work his brand as hard with her he's just he's just talking to someone who he knew would support him no matter what. So I, I, think, um, I think he did in some way value how much Boulanger was supportive of his work and of him. Uh, of him. Um, I think he did get something out of that for sure.
0: What what sort of editor was Boulanger? Or maybe I can ask it in a broader way. Can you talk a little bit about um, exactly what Boulanger contributed to Stravinsky as a composer?
1: All right. So that's um, for that we have a few scores. So the first is the Symphony de Psaume, which Boulanger or the Symphony of Psalms, which Boulanger edited um, the piano vocal score for, her. and similarly, Persephone, She takes those scores after they have been composed. Sunima was the principal person responsible for creating the piano reductions, and we have to remember this is a world where piano reductions were often the place people would go to engage with a work first. Um, if you're a teacher, that's primarily what you're teaching from. So the piano vocal scores were very important and they were important to his publishers because they would make some some serious money off of these piano vocal scores. So um, Boulanger looked at these piano vocal scores after having, you know, especially with the Symphony of Psalms, she was able to go to the premiere. She had a, a signed copy of the autograph score given to her as a thank you gift from Stravinsky. She knew this work and her... Um, by all accounts, her memory is legendary. She could absorb a piece of music after only one hearing. I mean, she just, uh, the stories are are, are legendary. I, I, I can't imagine ever having the, the opportunity to to meet someone with that kind of musical capabilities. So when she looked at what Suleim had prepared, she decided it it wasn't accurate. It wasn't clear. Um, there are certain elements in the piano vocal score that were simply wrong compared to the orchestral version. But what she also did was she added in articulation. She added in, she corrected a lot of tempo markings. She would often be correcting tempo markings, um, uh, dynamic markings. And we learned later uh, from a grant project that Sulima submits I believe it's in the 1960s, he says he makes a case for wanting to redo all of his father's piano music. Um, and he explains, you know, my father didn't want to put expressive markings into the manuscripts, he was avoiding, he wanted to avoid overinterpretation interpretation or the overindulgence of performers. So we learned that these scores were very minimalist in their content. But Boulanger was of the opinion, well, if you do that, no one's going to know what the piece is supposed to sound like. You have to capture your interpretation. You have to capture your legacy. And so she really did teach him about attention to detail. Um, she would. Uh, she often worked with his prosody and making sure that he had clearly uh, explained what went where and how to actually execute his music. So that was what she did with the Symphonie de Bosaume and then Fun. And then with the Dumbarton Oaks concerto, Boulanger actually ends up conducting the premiere. And so she has the autograph score sent to her by Stravinsky. And Stravinsky is telling her, look, I don't have time because the premiere was moved up unexpectedly and his wife and daughter were very ill. And he said, you know what, I just, I trust that it's in your hands and it will be fine. And so she writes back and says, well, we're we're correcting as we go. And so we actually have for that score... We have what um, what she calls as her copy. And if you go to the archives, what's, what's wonderful about the score, uh, so Stravinsky sent it to her by boat, in, and he would roll it up, right, um, and tie it. And so if you look at the score still to this day, it curls up at the edges because it had been rolled up when it was sent to her. So we have her copy of the score, and we also have her copy of the piano vocal reduction, where she has done, a, a number of, of edits and changes. Um, and again, she never alters the music. You know, Stravinsky was sacrosanct. You did not recompose, but what she did was she added a level of detail and clarity to the reception of the music by any future performer. So the Notes concerto is one that begs for a new edition based upon Boulanger's own edits. I, I, I would love to see that happen. Um, and then we have the symphony in C, which we know that Stravinsky gave to Boulanger to correct. And she never ended up doing it because by that point in time, when she took over the symphony in C and it was clear that he was basically asking her to do the, what she had done before, right? This sort of post-compositional editorial cleaning up. Um, and she had arrived in the United States. She was there during the war um, and she was just devastated by having left her country. Uh, she felt as if she had abandoned her friends, and she should never have left. But nonetheless, it was there was no turning back. Uh, and so she actually has arguably a mental breakdown. And um, and the Symphony of Sea is a project that gets wrapped up in that uh, moment where she's trying to recover. And so um, the Symphony in C project, we know she corrected, but I cannot find, I have not to this day been able to find the score that she talks about in her letters as having, you know, many indications of what should be changed. We know that she eventually farmed that out to Alexei Hayev to try and get him to complete it for her, and he never did. And so if you look at the score to this day, the Symphony in C score, it needs correcting. It was never actually corrected. Um, So we have letters during the war that she worked on that with uh, the Symphony in C with Stravinsky, though we don't know what she did because we don't have a score. We know that she helped with the reorchestration of the Danse Sacrale from the Rite of Spring. And that autograph score was given to Boulanger as a gift in thanks, and that's in her archives. Um, But we don't know the process. We just know that she was at the table when that happened. And also the one document that she really did help with was the Poétique Musicale, which Stravinsky read at Harvard um, as part of the Elliot Norton series. Um, He read those at Harvard uh, and then Boulanger oversaw their publication into English. And so we have, there's a great deal of documentation uh, and an annotated copy of that in Paris. So there's, so much material and it all depends. And then of course, sorry, there's also, sorry, um, the Sonata for Two Pianos, which Stravinsky wrote for her uh, and they premiered together, the two of them, or sorry, they performed together in California, um, the two of them. And we have her score that she wrote, that she played from and that Stravinsky would have also played from. So she, she wasn't ever changing notes, as I said, but there was this, she was a trusted um, interpreter of her, of his music. She was a trusted polisher of the score. And it kind of shows you, I don't want to say Stravinsky's laziness, but at least his willingness to indulge other people in handling the details uh, in certain cases for him. I, I think he, he really did appreciate how much Boulanger wanted to do this for him. He he was willing to to indulge her interest in, in having access to his scores.
0: You know, he has one other really close relationship that I don't know that it's really analogous, but of course with Robert Kraft. And I wonder, what do you think it says about Stravinsky that he's got these people in his life that are so close to him that he... I don't know if seeding power is exactly the right word, but he's certainly, like you were saying, he's certainly willing to share his scores, share some of the duties. Um, you know, do, do you think that's unusual with con- con- composers? Is this something uh, that we need to think about as being unusual for, to Stravinsky? Or um, do you think most composers have people like this in their lives?
1: I think collaboration is something that enriches many creative people. So, um, you know, we can look we can look through at history and we'll find composers leaning on on people to collaborate with them. Um, Stravinsky and Robert Kraft is is a curious relationship. And to this day, I think we we still need more information. Um, but certainly, you know, Robert Kraft certainly insinuated himself into Stravinsky's life. I mean, he ends up, you know, moving in and living there and helping them, uh, helping Stravinsky with conducting and his claims to having been involved in the compositional process. And, uh, and I think it's no, and I, I think I say this in the book, that it's no accident that Kraft grows close to Stravinsky that after Boulanger has returned to Paris. And I think that there is a vacuum left behind, not just by Boulanger, but... After the war, I think Stravinsky was was quite lonely. I think Stravinsky was a very social person. And um, I think that he, I think he was rather insecure. I I don't think that that's a startling claim to make. And so I think he enjoyed having people around who would make him feel good about what he was doing and and how he was composing. Um, I think he enjoyed that sort of supportive community. So uh, I, I wonder if it's it's a question of of how he was, uh, how he operated as a collaborator, not so much that he collaborated, if that makes sense.
0: I don't want to, I, I want to honor your book by talking about Boulanger more than Stravinsky. So I want, to, I want to turn to some things about her that struck me that I'd love to ask you more about. Um one thing I, I was thinking about as I was reading through, you know, she was a conductor, which is a very unusual role for women still today. She was also a composer. Of course, she had a sister, Lily Boulanger, who died young, who was a very good composer as well. And I kept wondering if you saw her as... Someone who was sort of maneuvering within the social constraints of her day and who didn't really think of herself as being particularly um, constrained by being a woman? Or do you think of her as someone who was always pushing against those limits, who thought, who was trying to break a completely new path? You know, is she defining a path for herself? You see what I'm saying? I mean, I, I think that, you know, in 2018, sometimes women become really hyper conscious of of their own limitations that society is trying to impose on them but that's not that's not always true of all women and certainly not women in the past as well when we weren't thinking about women's liberation so to speak as much so can can you tell me about like how she functions within within society's roles and and did she think of herself as a feminist that sort of thing
1: How much time do you have? Um,
0: (laughs) Well, sorry about that. You can talk all you want.
1: (laughs) All right. Um, So as I said, when I started working on Boulanger, I was 20-something, and I really wanted her to be a feminist because that would have been so interesting. And I think that early on in life, before her sister died, before the First World War, I think Boulanger found the notion of being an iconoclast attractive, she wanted, so when she started out, when she competed for the Prix de Rome and she got the second place, it was a scandal, right? It was a scandal because when she competed and she got to the second round, um, she had to compose a fugue. And Camille saint produced this theme. And so she had to compose uh, a fugue and she decided that the theme just wasn't appropriate for voices. And so instead she wrote a string fugue. And this caused a huge scandal. How dare this woman think that she know better than the great Camille Stenson? We have the committee deliberating. We have the press writing all about it. And, of course, they agreed to let her go on. And So she competes in the final round. And by all accounts, she won outright. She had the best score. It was the most beautiful music of the competition. But they refused to award a first prize to anyone. And instead, they give Boulanger the runner-up prize. I think that that moment was bitterly disappointing to her. I think up until that point, because of her extraordinary musical capabilities and because she graduated with a number of first prizes from the Paris Conservatoire, had she been a man, she could have done whatever she wanted. She would have had her pick of, of, of positions anywhere. And because she was a woman they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they didn't see it that way. And she didn't have that, um, those opportunities. And I think that the Grand Prix de Rome problem Mm -hmm. bitterly disappointed her. And then her sister won in 1913. Um, and then the first world war began. So I think a lot of Boulanger's early ambitions and her early brashness and, you know, uh, you know, in everyone's face kind of thing, um it was a moment for her, and in uh, you know in addition to the Prix de Rome, she also had been collaborating with Ra Pugnon, who was a very famous pianist, adored um and he you know he supported her as a composer. And as a performer, he would travel with her, they would perform together. And so he basically protected her for, for against any sort of you know, misogynistic discrimination. He, she would co-compose works with him and then they would be published or, or um, performed because it also had Pugnot there. Now, we now know that Pugnot, who was much older than Boulanger, was also romantically involved with her. Um, and so in 1914, they traveled to Moscow together, they are going to go on this concert tour, and he just had kidney surgery. And when they arrive in Moscow, Pugno falls ill with an infection, a fever, and dies. So Boulanger is in Moscow with her collaborator, no one will let her perform without him. Um, they won't, she doesn't, she won't make any money, she won't be able to to afford the tour unless um, she does these concerts. Uh, So she actually is stuck in Moscow without the money to return home. A family friend finally wires her the funds and she accompanies the body back to Paris. And right after this happens, of course, the First World War breaks out. I think that that was a chapter in Boulanger's life from which she never really recovered. I, I think it was a formative... As just a series of catastrophes. Um, And then, of course, before the war is over, her sister has died. So her sister dies in in March 1918. So when she leaves the war, she sees um, a country that's devastated, an economy that's in trouble, and she has to figure out how to support her mother. She's the only surviving um, uh, person who can support her mother. And so she turns to teaching and she reinvents herself in that context. And I think that she saw feminism in that light at that moment as problematic, because if you win, you win big, but if you lose, you also lose big. And so I think at that point, she began to think more in terms of stability and long-term stability. Unfortunately for her, she also, in not wanting to jump on the feminist bandwagon, at least not as we would understand it as North Americans, French feminism was quite different um, at the time it was it was far more uh, diverse anyway um, by not jumping on that sort of uh, nouvelle femme um, bandwagon Boulanger also created the tools that would eliminate the ability to capture her own legacy so when she's promoting a woman's um, You know, when she says a woman should be at home, should be a mother first, um, should be a loving wife, um, as she's, you know, eroding women's professional access or access to professional success, she's also, you know, training uh, generation after generation of composers who also will say, well, Boulanger was just a lady and lady composers aren't aren't really worth it. Or, you know, lady teachers are just lady teachers and they're not really... um, that important. So Boulanger was committed to the tools that would be her very undoing in some ways, I think. And I'm highly sensitive to the fact that writing a feminist book about her probably would have not been her (laughs) cup of tea. Like I don't think she would have really been thrilled that someone was writing a book about her using feminist tools. I don't think that would have really resonated with her. As far as her choices to be a conductor and her choices to be um, you know, the first woman to do so many things. I think she loved her own exceptionality. I think she uh, saw her own exceptionality as costing her dearly, because it meant that she couldn't be a wife or a mother. Uh, it meant, uh, in her own view, she had to sacrifice so much that had she had another opportunity, she may have chosen a different path. So um, I think she very much protected that exceptionality and didn't necessarily want to break down at barriers for anyone else. Um, so that's part of why, I mean, yes, we see her. I think she was an astoundingly capable, talented musician and she had an encyclopedic memory and she was exclusively devoted to her work, to her craft. Um, so I think that she felt all alone One of the things she'll often speak to Stravinsky about is this concept of the isolating nature of genius, that genius renders you incomprehensible to others, uh, inaccessible to others, but it is your curse and it is your gift so that you can produce great music. There are moments in other letters, though, where you get the sense that she also felt isolated, that she felt her own gifts had rendered um, a certain solitude to her. It had had rendered her isolated, and so I, I think that she was loath to open up that isolation to anyone else and create sort of a community uh, of women who could do as she had done.
0: That brings up something: this community of women that she. You do talk about one other woman uh quite a bit and that's louise talma um and they had a very contentious relationship and i was wondering first of all could you you know let us know about that so that everyone knows where we are but also why did you decide um to include that episode in this book as it does pull you a little bit away from the focus on on the relationship with stravinsky
1: I agree. So, (laughs) oh, to write a book two times over, right? (laughs) Maybe in the next edition. Um, So Louise Talma was a student of Boulanger's and uh, she was so prolific. Uh, She produced so many letters. We have her notes when she studied with Boulanger. She studied with Boulanger as a, uh, a teenager and then she returned as an adult and sort of sat at the feet of the master. And I've I've had um, alumni describe Louise Talma to me as trying to be more boulanger than boulanger so she was sort of an acolyte a disciple if you will of boulanger but she also would pick fights with her all the time so it was sort of um she she was you know almost attempting to adopt boulanger as a mother and and boulanger really did resist that sort of thing from her so when I was initially doing the research and I'd exhausted the Stravinsky um, family correspondence I'd read it all I turned to the Talma letters and Talma does provide so much information to us about how the students were taught to receive Stravinsky so she'll you know she'll write to Boulanger of a performance she's gone to hear of the Symphony of Psalms and wouldn't you know they didn't they didn't do what Boulanger taught them to do and uh, and she provides some some details. Uh, So Talma's letters are really quite interesting. And then they become especially gripping um, because they provide you with a little bit more information about a feud that happened between Boulanger and Talma during the Second World War. Talma, it would seem, had heard Boulanger say something anti-Semitic. And then um, the feud kind of exploded from there. So... um, the reason that I talk about that in the book, there's a couple of reasons. The first is that, as I said before, we have so very little written about Boulanger, but we do have this one biography by Léonie Rosensteel, And the Rosensteel is an interesting book. But as I said, it's highly problematic. Very little of the sources are, are you know, footnoted. And there's a certain agenda behind the text. There's a certain narrative Um Rosenstiel was a pupil of Boulanger's. And one gets the impression from that book that Rosenstiel didn't particularly like Boulanger. And so she writes with a very specific narrative in mind that isn't always um, supported by the evidence. And one of the things that Rosenstiel talks about throughout that book, uh, she paints Boulanger as an anti-Semite. And that interpretation has then been adopted by by other scholars who read Rosensteel and then cite it when they're talking about Boulanger. So it became important to me to explain where that anti-Semitic reading of Boulanger came from. It comes from Talma, It comes from this spat that happened in the, in the second world war. Um, And I wanted to, um, engage it in this book in the context of Boulanger's state of mind during the Second World War, because that does directly play into what she was experiencing and how she was engaging with Stravinsky at the time. So it, it's, it is a bit of a digression, but it allows me to at least talk about the question of anti-Semitism, which you know, Richard Traskin has also dealt with at length in Stravinsky's own music. And so I felt that it was an important topic to raise in this kind of a book. Um, that And that Talma spat um, gives us further details about exactly what Boulanger encountered and how her world really did tilt and pivot at that point um, when she ended up in the United States, um, which we don't, and again, that's a corrective to the Rosensteel, which doesn't really give us that kind of information. Um, so I think part of that's part of what I was trying to do is to flesh out this really important time in Boulanger's life. It was also a really important time in her relationship to Stravinsky. It provides further context for why. Um, Boulanger starts you know she writes that amazing letter on the 17th of March 1941 um, where she just and she never writes by typewriter but she types out this letter to Stravinsky that's full of typos and errors and she's clearly losing her mind and it's two pages three pages of why she's so desperately heartbroken at being stuck in the United States when her country is is experiencing what it's experiencing and I couldn't I didn't feel right looking at that letter and talking about that letter without explaining what else was going on in Boulanger's world at that time.
0: I really was struck at how unhappy she was here in the United States. I think there's sometimes people who live in the United States can think, well, you know, during the war, they must have been so grateful to not be in Europe during that time. But we really see that she did not feel that way and how... Um, really devastating it was for her not to be sharing in the hardships that she knew uh, her, her fellow French citizens were and, and um, you know, how hard that was for her. And I think that you drew that, drew that out very well and sh- to show sort of the psychic damage of being an émigré in wartime
1: we have to remember that she was basically coming to a world where her students were in charge. And so she'd been used to being at the top of the pecking order. And then she comes here and she's beholden to her students to provide her with positions. Um, And she's in many places, a professor underneath them as deans. Right. And so she has to adjust and she does so terribly. And I think understandably so. Uh, She also, I mean, she's, she was in Paris, During the First World War, she stayed and I think it was very, very difficult for her to just imagine what was going on. Because for the most part, she didn't have a means of communicating with friends back home, with colleagues back home in Paris. Um, I think she was brutally, brutally hard on herself. And we do know that, you know, she has those those health issues that arise from from being in the United States and also you can see like her hair goes gray to white and um, it just it took a huge toll on her to not be there to not be going through it with everyone else.
0: You mentioned that one reason to bring in Louise Talma was because Talma really helped you understand the way that she taught Stravinsky. And a lot of this book, towards the end, you uh, sort of second half, you do provide um, insight into the way that um, Boulanger analyzed Stravinsky's music and I'd like you can you talk a little bit about why you made that choice what do you see as important about her as an analyst as opposed to say an editor or someone who's going through and correcting um, uh, some of the piano vocal scores or as a conductor why why was being an analyst also an important um, aspect of her work
1: so many of the scores that we have where she's analyzed the music is in a different archive from that to the corrected scores. So what happened with her estate was when Boulanger died, some of it went to the Bibliothèque Nationale de France and in Paris, and then some of it was her teaching materials. So you have to remember the the, the amount of music this woman had at her disposal was just voluminous. It was, it was mad, the amount of stuff she had. Um, so the Bibliothèque National de France agreed to take the the documentary materials, the letters, uh, anything that was, you know, particularly precious. And then most of the rest of the stuff, the teaching materials, anything she'd used uh, in that context went to Lyon. So the dissertation research, I didn't end up going to Lyon, I didn't have uh, the time or the money. And so I had amassed this understanding of Boulanger as sort of an editor, as a correspondent, um, as a devoted uh, promoter. And then um, I managed in writing the book to get a follow-up grant and to go to Lyon. And when I went to Lyon, it, it was incredible because all of the missing music was there. So I had the story that Boulanger, you know, kind of stopped looking at the music after, you know, after the Rake's Progress, when Stravinsky becomes a serialist. That was kind of where I was at. Um, And I knew that she'd reference the other materials as a teacher, but I didn't really have any scores. I didn't really have much evidence beyond one exceptionally beautiful analysis of the elegy for JFK. Um, which shows us that Boulanger was familiar with serial analytical techniques and had done it with this one score. But as far as I could tell, this was just a novelty. This was just something she explored once, but didn't really love. When I went to Lyon, I discovered everything else, which was where, and I think it was because her executors didn't necessarily see the value in these later scores, or maybe they were, they just didn't open them up to see. They didn't know but she had analyzed so much more of it. And so when, in the 1930s, 1920s, when Boulanger is editing this music, sorry, 30s and 40s, when Boulanger is editing the music, we have the letters, we have so much supportive material that tells us what was going on. It was a part of the dialogue. And that stuff is in Paris. The an- analysis that happens in 50 after after she returns to Paris on her own is just a sort of private um, capturing of how she was engaging with the music when Stravinsky was so far away. So, you know, in the 30s and 40s, he was a phone call or, or, or a telegram away. But in, in after the war, there isn't just, um, you know, the physical distance component. There's also, you know, uh, the geographical or the, the aesthetic difference when Stravinsky begins writing serial music. Uh, And then Robert Kraft is there. And so the nature of their dialogue shifts dramatically when Boulanger returns to Paris. Um, Mm -hmm. And so this analysis became a new avenue for exploring their relationship when the other documentation uh, falls away. And it shows sort of how she maintained her relationship to Stravinsky and her relationship to Stravinsky was so entrenched in the score and was so entrenched in her own engagement with this music. And it shows us that she knew the serial music. She knew it well. She prepared several of the works for performance. Um, and she even um, did a number of, of detailed analyses in uh, using serial techniques. So it's it's this moment where we're split between the public face of the lectures that she was giving and then this private, personal, and possibly even um, within the classroom and analysis of the work.
0: Do you think that... So, you're, you don't seem to be sure whether or not she actually taught these analyses. I mean, what, what do you, do you have any idea or can you tell us more about how she taught Stravinsky? And do you think that how she taught Stravinsky to all these students then carries over into the way they performed Stravinsky, the way they taught Stravinsky, the way that Stravinsky influenced them? I guess I'm trying to sort of suss out what you, how you think of her as being. Um, you know, after she's, she's moved on from having this close relationship for, personal relationship for for uh, with Stravinsky. You know, how does that longer legacy that tail end of their lives together? How does that work?
1: So what's extant are every year she would run um, a Wednesday afternoon class out of her apartment. And so it was a, an extension of the, the tradition of, of women having a salon in Paris and, you know, the public would come and they would have events. So her open house, her salon was always Wednesday afternoons. And so she would produce this flyer and it would say, come to the Wednesday afternoon classes and I will teach X, Y and Z And so I have all of those are extant from when she started um, running them until her very last, the very last year of her life, 79. And so I've been able to track what she taught every year and every single piece by Stravinsky that is on there. So I do know that she proposed to teach some of these works, um, some of the more lavish um, or sorry, not lavish, but um, elaborate Analyses belong to the canticum sacrum, um, to the requiem canticles, and uh, to the elegy for JFK. And those pieces do appear on her syllabi. So we know that she at least intended to teach them. What I also know is that she would not always stick to what she was supposed to do. So even when she was giving pre-concert talks or lectures with the BBC, um, she sometimes went off on a tangent or she would get excited uh, about something and and dwell on that, you know, as as can happen when you're um, getting passionate about your teaching materials. And so... Um, I don't know that what she documented and proposed that she was going to teach. I don't know that's what she actually taught. I also don't know exactly what happened in the classroom because those details do not exist um, after. I don't have those details because Talma doesn't provide them in in her written notes. So Talma is no longer creating these this written documentation of Boulanger's teaching practices. We do have a few times in the 30s where a stenographer was sent to Boulanger's class as they were so popular um, that a stenographer was sent there and then her actual lecture materials were published as part of the Monde Musicale. So we do have a couple of those, but again, um, those are just snippets. Uh, So I had to hypothesize for the most part. I can say that there are things I see in Stravinsky scholars work. Those people who studied with Boulanger, I can see so much resonance between Boulanger's analyses and what they were producing. So for example, Peter Vandentorn, who's um, who has amazing work, uh, analytical work on Stravinsky. He was a Boulanger pupil. Um, And the one that I think is closest in resonance to Boulanger is actually Arthur Berger. He studied with Boulanger during the Second World War, and he wrote to her after that he took over her classes. When she left to go to Paris, he ended up taking over for her. And then he writes to her, I'm, I'm writing about Stravinsky. I hope I can send this to you for your approval, right? I'll, I, hope I, can, I hope you would approve of what I'm, of what I'm doing. And then he, of course, is a person who coins the term octatonicism. He is the first person to really put forward um, his own definition of Stravinsky and Octotonicism. So there are these these strands, these 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 um, these these little veins that you can trace through her students into the textbooks. That were used into the materials that were studied. And I think a case could be made for and I, and I, I hypothesized that in the first book is a case for Boulanger is sort of this node in American theoretical um, practices of the 20th century. Because so many of them were either first generation or second generation Boulanger pupils. I myself, actually, I should say, I'm um, a second generation, if you will, Boulanger pupil, because I studied with a student of hers for my undergrad. So there's still so much influence out there Um through her teachings and, and through her students.
0: Have you had a chance to talk to anyone who's still alive that studied with her extensively, or or um, were they all gone by the time you really were starting this research?
1: No. I mean, one of the exciting things about working with Boulanger is you're forever being um, emailed or... Um spoken. I've had the pleasure of speaking with so many of Boulanger's pupils who are still alive. There is a generation of them that is still with us. Um, You know, it's, it's, you'd be hard-pressed still, I think, to go to, to a university and not have somebody there who had studied with Boulanger or, um, but it is a community that is aging and it would be amazing Uh, to continue to capture their uh, their experiences. Um, Emil Naumov very generously spoke to me at length while I was writing the first book, and um, his discussions were were brilliantly helpful in helping me flesh out the sort of personal side of Boulanger, the person outside of the stern teacher. Uh, He was one of her last uh, young prodigies. He studied with her as a young boy, and, uh, and so he almost knew her more as a grandmother figure than, than as a teacher. And so he, he was very supportive of the work that I was doing in my, my reading of the materials. Um, David Conti is another uh, person who studied composition with her, a wonderful composer in his own right, uh, who spoke with me at length about his experiences and uh, about how he continues to carry on her, her legacy through his own teaching practices. So. I, I've been lucky enough that I arrived at this project. I feel uh, right at the right time. Um, my, my colleague, Janice Brooks, who um, has been working on Boulanger uh, longer than I have, um, arrived at it even before I did. So she had, had, she had a chance to talk to a number of people within Boulanger's inner circle. And so uh, I continue to consider myself fortunate that I can you know, sit with Janice and she can share what she knows as well. Uh, So it's still history that's very close to a lot of people.
0: Well, then I think uh, this might be a good time to turn to your future projects, since you uh, seem to have some ideas of where you're going from here. So what are you working on right now?
1: So Janice and I, uh, it's funny I should mention Janice because um, she and I are at the moment completing um, an edited collection of all of Boulanger's works, her unpublished and and unpublished writings. So in the 1920s and in the 1950s, Boulanger wrote a number of, or sorry, late 1940s, um, Boulanger wrote columns of criticism. And so uh, we've collected all. Well, Janice collected all of those and has brought me on board to help um, with their editorial processing. And also in that book will be Boulanger's lectures, her thing, her talks with the BBC, her talks when she came in, and spoke at the Rice Institute in the in the nineteen twenties it's it's this uh, it's a wonderful collection of of Boulanger's writings and again it's it's another side of her right it's Boulanger as teacher it's Boulanger as public musicologist as as public advocate um, there's a lot of stravinsky related material in there as you might imagine a lot of foray a lot of um, promotion of Boulanger's own students so that's exciting we're hoping to have that uh, finished soon and then uh, the next book that I'm working on, my, my next monograph that I'm hoping to have um, fleshed out uh, this this summer, is actually on um, women who were associated with the occult during the interwar period and who were composers uh, who were writing music um, and incorporating uh, concepts of exoticism and religious freedom into their music. So I'm looking at actually Marcel de Montierry, who was a student of Boulanger's, Uh, And who was deeply involved in the theosophy movement. And so she travels to India and we have this rich discussion of of what it was like to be a white woman traveling to India, trying to write music, trying to um, incorporate exoticism into her self-expression. Um, so I'm doing a whole, a whole take on her, her travels. And again, that's stemming from correspondence because every day Marcel would write to Boulanger her impressions of what was going on. So there's, there's um, so much to talk about as far as, you know, uh, this um, French people's perception of empire um, and this, this white woman exploring this world um, and her own engagement with, with the world around her. So I, I'm you know, taking Ralph Locke's extraordinary work and, and uh, turning it towards women's personal self-expression, which I think is something we haven't done a lot of as musicologists. And so I'm trying to take a look at how, again, the sense of culture and context and community um, informed expressions of exotic, the exotic in music from a woman's perspective.
0: Well, both those projects sound really exciting, and I'm sure we'll be all looking for them to come out in, in the coming years. So, thank you so much, Kim, for joining me today and uh, for talking about your work.
1: Well, oh, thank you, Kristen. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much. You're very welcome.